Hi everyone, and welcome back to Chitheads. Today, I had the very great pleasure of speaking to a teacher who has played a big role in my own journey as a yoga practitioner and teacher in New York City, Nikki Valella, who co-founded the Kula Yoga Project in Williamsburg and who has been a teacher at Kula Yoga Project for many years spoke with me about the past, the present, and the future of the yoga world, the yoga community, and what it is to be a teacher now, and the kinds of changes that we've been required to make, and the evolutions that we have been required to undergo as teachers. So this interview does two things. On the one hand, it's a kind of love letter to Kula Yoga, its community, its teachers, and its history in New York City. And then on the other hand, it's a contemplation or meditation on the current state of the yoga world, the yoga asana world, and how it has changed and what its future might look like. So for those of you who are not familiar with Kula Yoga, I hope this will be an introduction and perhaps send you in the direction of Kula's classes online or in New York City, and of course, especially Nikki's classes. So if you're not familiar with Kula, the first bit of this conversation might be a little bit of a slow burn for you as Nikki and I talk a lot of shop and behind the scenes conversations about Kula's current situation and, and how it's kind of evolved through the uh, pandemic. But I urge you to stick with the interview because it really does evolve into a wide-ranging conversation about um, what it is to be a modern yoga teacher and how uh, Nikki especially has navigated a lot of the challenges and changes that have taken place over the last years of her teaching. And a lot of these insights and perspectives will be applicable to many people, both yoga practitioners and teachers. So it's a really interesting and fun conversation, and uh, I really enjoyed it, and I hope you do too. Tell me a little bit about what has been happening with Kula, because you survived COVID, right, which was not the case with a lot of studios in New York. Yeah. Do you feel like that was really as a result of the the shift to live and the ability of that to kind of maintain the physical spaces? Like that must have been hard, right? To retain the the brick and mortar spaces when every literally everything else was closed. It seemed like everything else was closing down. Yeah. I have so much to say. And it's this is why I when I say I don't really know what's going on in the yoga world, it's because it's consistently unraveling and unfolding and yeah. revealing things when um, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but I was an economics major, which I don't tell most people, but once in a while I do. Um, So I really love numbers. Like I really like the part of running a business. That's like, let's look at spreadsheets. Let's dive into the numbers. Like what's really happening. Um, And we've been doing a lot of that lately. And it reveals, it consistently reveals things over the past few years that are just kind of always shocking and surprising to me um, as the yoga world shifts. So when, when COVID first came around, we, we, we worked really hard, but we transitioned to the online platform pretty quickly. Yeah, um, you did. And, you know, we kind of, I mean, in the very first days, we didn't even have microphones. It was great. You know, we were just yelling into the abyss of the room, hoping that the <laughs> iPhone would pick up the voice, but, you know, we kind of quickly got it together. Like we got some good lighting and we got the microphone going and we liked the platform that we were on and it looked good. Um, and we had a little bit of a unique story in that Williamsburg, our 10 year lease was up during 
early COVID. I mean, in June of 2020, our 10 year lease was over and we knew that those landlords didn't, they weren't going to re sign with us. It was just, they were like tripling the rent and it was just crazy expensive. Um, and they wanted us to stay in the building, but to move into the back facing the garden, which is where we are now. You've mm. been in that space, Jacob, right? Yeah. I love that space. Yeah. Okay. It's really nice. Okay. I was worried about it at first because I don't Me know. Too. I mean, that, that studio, the Brooklyn studio was just, it was such a special space, Oh, I know. but you've, you've transitioned into something actually that's quite similar. I mean, it's really yeah. And there's something sort of like the original, like Tribeca space in that you have to go in this yeah. convoluted way to get totally. back there. I know. And I love that. It feels a little bit sort of secret in the, in the historic way that Kula has felt a little bit yes. secret. Yeah, totally. And you know, it's, it's, I recreated the old space as best I could, but it's, it's not the same, you know, I mean, it's definitely a transition and it's a different thing and that feels fine. And that old space was so special and it's just kind of, it's, it's a, I, I can't even bear to say this, but it's reopening right now as a clothing store. Of course, it's like a retail Herman, Herman Miller furniture store went into the skateboard shop next to us. And it's going to be ours is a retail store, but anyways. Um, so that lease was over and they, they wanted us to move. So they kind of like helped usher us into like several months where we couldn't be open by the, you know, regulations in New York. Um, where we weren't paying rent because we didn't have a lease. Our lease was over. Um, the backspace needed to be built out, you know, so on and so forth. So we had several months where we weren't paying rent in Brooklyn um, with the agreement of the landlord. And then in Soho, because Soho is so expensive, we basically just didn't, we stopped paying rent. <laughs> I mean, we had an agreement with them as well. I mean, it wasn't just like they were calling us every day asking for money and we were saying, no, we're not paying. They, they're, it's a family owned building. And I had lots of conversations with the owners and they actually were really sweet and supportive. And, you know, they were, they knew what was going on and I mean, it wasn't just us. I mean, they have other buildings and other tenants and they, they just told us to hang out and hold on and allowed us to not pay rent. And then we renegotiated some like back pay and other things later when we were able to open. So when COVID first happened and we went online and it was like wildly popular and we had no overhead, we were like, wow, we have more money than we've ever, you know, in 20 years of being open, yeah. like this is really working. This is amazing. And you know, I, I have no interest in being an online only studio or an online only teacher. It's just not my jam at all. And it's, it's not Skylar's, it's not most of our teachers. Um, we, I really, and, I, and I'll just say we as a collective at Kula believe in bricks and mortar spaces and, yeah. you know, getting our hands on people and like building community in that way. And we really believe in that. So we, we did reopen both spaces and, um, when, when you say we survive, I'm like, yes, we are still open and survived, but we're at this moment right now where the physical space, the, the kind of like weight of the physical space and the financial cost of it is catching up really quickly. You know, we went from mm -hmm. like, we have no costs, we have no overhead, we're not paying for heat, we're not, you know, like all these things and, you know, taxes and insurance and all the things. And then, I mean, we do pay our taxes, even when we were online to <laughs> Um, but the, you know, the costs it's, it's in the margins, but it really, really adds up. And we, we are at this point where we're back to kind of like, wow, <laughs> you know, the physical spaces are very hard to maintain financially, mm -hmm. unless you have volume and 
I, I actually feel very literally in this past week, like when June rolled around and it got really warm, which is not traditional. I mean, usually June comes and everybody's gone and the yoga studios are empty, but I feel people are coming back. It's slow and they're trickling and there are people. Um, but unless that continues to evolve and more people start coming back to class, it's what maintains us right now is the online, which yeah. was shocking to me. I mean, I, I, we always imagined it would, would like very quickly turn into kind of like this residual model where it's like this thing that's happening on the side that people who live in different time zones or, you know, are at home and can't get to the studio will take it and it will just give you like a little money here and there on the side. And that's not what it's become. So that's when I say, when I look at numbers and things and I'm always surprised, I'm like, oh, we can barely cover our rent in the physical spaces and what sustains us to be able to even pay you know, salaries and things are, is the online and, and, and not the live stream it's replays. Mm. It's people yeah, that it's, are taking it on their own time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, there's so much there. I mean, the, I remember, I, mean, I feel the same way with, about you, that you do about brick and mortar spaces, because for me personally, I know that when I try to practice by myself alone, even when it's your lovely face teaching, <laughs> I'm just, it's, it's just, I'm like, I'm a pause Nikki just for yeah. a minute yeah. while I check my phone or like, yeah. you know, oh, I need to use a restroom. You know, there's, there's so many ways in which distraction is, it's just easy to, to, to kind of relax into it and 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 much harder than to kind of focus and there's something about you know the supportive context and framework of a studio and then the students who you're practicing with all of that coalesces into this you know beautiful experience that is the group asana class totally. and there are always going to be people that maybe prefer to practice alone and maybe actually for the first time in their lives are taking a yoga class because they were so intimidated by going yeah. to a studio and practicing in fr front of other people. So there's definitely that whole contingent. Um, but it does seem like, yeah, that there, there's always going to be a desire for, for brick and mortar spaces, it, you know, in a, at least for those that have had enough history of, of, of practicing and teaching even that, you know, they know the benefits. They they've felt the experience of being in like a group class with that energy that's built um, between a teacher and students. But I'm curious, you know, on the numbers because one thing I was looking at, I was watching one of um, the videos that Miles made years ago. Mm -hmm. Of it's it's a it's a video of of Alex. I love Alex that video. Is, I, I started to cry. I know. I, I watched it recently. I don't know how. I was just Googling and I was looking for something and I saw that video and I thought, oh, I remember this, but not totally. Let me play it again. And oh my God, it's it's so beautiful. I know. And it just like brought back it's all nostalgic. the like, warm fuzzies. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I know exactly the video that you're talking about. Yeah. That. And it's Alex kind of going on her beautifully esoteric and poetic and, you know, thought provoking, um, you know, commentary on, on yoga and her relationship with it while watching her teach in the gorgeous Tribeca space that once was, <laughs> what is it now? You want to, you, you want to get out your barf bag ready? Oh God. I don't know if it is anymore, but during early COVID, um, some wealthy person's personal gym knocked down all the walls and made it a personal gym for someone. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's sad. Okay. I'll barf later. Um, I <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, 
that was such an epic space. But um, but yeah, I mean, there were so many there were so many people in that in that room when I was watching that video, and yeah. and and even before COVID, right? Like numbers were declining. The totally. the kind of there was a there was sort of a I don't even know if we would call it a golden age, but there was a moment of extreme popularity in yoga. Yeah, and it was it was when yoga went from being a weird marginal thing that had a kind of cult following, and in New York that was certainly the case. Yeah. Um, but then it became hyper popular, and it brought in yep. all of the people who you know were just looking for kind of a physical practice and not really you know interested in anything else. And so I'm curious what you think about that. Like, what have you seen changing? Like, why do you think, um, you know, yoga has, is changing in this way? And do you think there is a future for yoga in, in, in the way that it's been, you know, surviving in New York for the last, I mean, God knows how many years. I mean, how long have you been teaching actually? Um, I started teaching in 2005. So that's 17 years. <laughs> is wow. that some good math, economic math? Um, yeah. Well done. I know it, sometimes it does, sometimes it, it often does not feel like that. And then I ran into two students in Fort Green Park the other day that were just kind of old Park Slope students where I like originally, you know, started teaching in Brooklyn and I thought, wow, it has been 17 years. I mean, like she didn't recognize me at first and, you know, anyways. Um, so sometimes I do feel like really old and like I've been around a long time. And there's other times where I'm just like, I'm, you know, that process of like, wow, I still don't know anything. And I still feel fresh about it. And, um, that I, it doesn't feel like that long, but, um, that is a very tough question. And I, I talk a lot about it with a lot of people, just like, what is the future? Um, and I don't have a super concrete answer, but I'll, I'll give you some, some ideas that I have. Um, I, I absolutely don't think like what's happening in the yoga world is because of COVID. As you said, it was happening before that. And I, I kind of came, Jillian and I talk a lot about this. Like we were sort of at the tail end of that goal. I do consider it kind of the golden age. Um, like when I listened to, when you've interviewed like Alex or Skylar, or, you know, kind of that like Dana Flynn and the Jiva Mukti and like that era, I wasn't yeah. practicing at that time. You know, I was, I don't know what I was doing. I was like living some other life with platinum hair and whatever, high heels, whatever I was doing. Um, <laughs> I need to see those so, pictures. I know. So I, um, you know, I was kind of at the tail end of that golden age and it was, you know, I mean, I worked really hard and, you know, tried to per perfect my craft as best I could and blah, blah. But there was also like a lot of students around. I was kind of supported by the, the boon of that time. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, I mean, definitely the more people, I, I think it just became more mainstream, I suppose. And, and within that, um, you know, there's, there was lots of options. There was lots of just, I mean, I, I don't think we have goat yoga in New York city, but I mean, there's like the black light yoga and there's the hot yoga and there's this, and there's just like so many, you know, the super cheap yoga where it's like where all the college kids go and practice, you know, which like wasn't Kula. Um, yeah. And it, it definitely shifted. And I don't know all of those reasons. I'm sure it's very complex, but sometimes I wonder, you know, were, were, do people just start doing other things? Like they are, are they at like Barry's boot camp and doing soul cycle and jogging in the park or like whatever they're doing, going to bar classes? I mean, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and that, uh, that always feels a little curious to me because that means that the yoga was just fitness to people. You know, if they've yeah. just replaced their yoga practice with like going to a bar class or, or what have mm -hmm. you. 
Um, and I, you know, in many ways, I think COVID's been a great reckoning for people in, in good and bad ways. And I don't, I don't hate what has happened. I, I kind of, I sort of embrace that. Um, I Yoga know. can be weird again. Yeah. I'm kind of like the trash got taken out. That's a little bit, you know, that, that seems like so harsh, but you know, we had the Williamsburg space that you speak of, um, you know, I mean, it was, I loved it and I loved the community and I love the students it, it, and slash, but it was also a place where people, um, you know, they would come every day and just sort of like spend their time. It, it wasn't very intentional. Sometimes it was just kind of like this thing that people did, you know, to, to not have to go to their house or I don't know, before they went and picked up their kids or whatever was happening. Um, and, you know, it was a scene. It was like on North third, you could walk in from the street. We had the cafe, you know, there was oh, those sandwiches. I know I'm dying. Brownies I, sandwiches. I know, oh I know. And I, I do miss all of that, but I also, like you said, kind of being in the back where you have, there's like, they, we have a sign, but no one can see it. People can like never figure out how to get in the door, which is very sort of how Tribeca was. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a really beautiful community is growing out of that. And I, I mean, I have no choice. I can't go back and like do the old thing anymore because that's totally changed. But I, I am embracing it because it's growing in the organic way that I saw Tribeca grow, where it's a, it's a lot of people do travel to the Williamsburg studio, but it's a lot of neighborhood people that are kind of walking or biking and telling their friends. And there's a lot of new students coming nowadays, which um, is kind of, it's beautiful to, to see. So mm. what the future is, I mean, I think that people, it feels very intentional. You know, we, we, we've never, we don't love the idea of just like, make it more expensive, raise prices. That's how we're going to pay the rent, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, we raise prices a little bit, like $3 more per class during, you know, post COVID world. And it, it's, um, it feels more intentional. Like if people are coming, it also feels more intentional because people were stuck in their homes for years and never left, you know, we, we nobody was leaving the house. And I, I actually think it's hard to get people to leave the house now. I think that's part yeah. of the reason online does well because it takes like an hour to get to the studio a 90 minute, you know, or whatever, 75 minute class, an hour to get home. It's like four hours of your day to go to yoga which is yeah. like a total privilege. And, you know, I mean, you've got to be like a certain person that has that sort of lifestyle and can like do that thing. Yeah. Um, so it feels really intentional right now, the people that come to class and show up because they're making a decision that, yes, I am going to take the train there or ride my bike or whatever it is, do the class. If you're dropping in, pay the $25 um, and, you know, make my way back home. And mm. that's a different feeling I think in the room than someone that's just passing time you know that's just sort of like going there because that's the that's the thing I do and you know kind of being part of the scene and so forth so I don't hate it it's hard I mean it's hard to make the business work that way when you don't have that many bodies in the room um but like I said I I feel like people are trickling back and it feels pretty good I don't know if it's sustainable and I hope it is and we can talk yeah about I mean Go ahead. I think that the nice thing I mean one of the one of the reasons why I think Kula 
you know, why I personally believe Kula will survive is because Kula is doing something that is offers a level of precision and intelligence that is just not par for the course in many in 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 a lot of yoga communities. You know, I'm living here in Oxford um, at the moment studying and you know, people are like, well, have you found a studio? I'm like, yes, I have. I hope the person who owns the studio doesn't hear this. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm like, yes, I had. But also like I, you know, sometimes I think like, God, it, I could if if I had the bandwidth right now to start a studio. I mean, this this community is just starved for something with a level of kind of precision and just like or to raise the bar a little bit on what is offered as an asana class and kula because kula is so um tuned in on that front i think it is just you know it's almost like a matter of you know where are the how do we funnel people in from the larger online space to realize that kula is there and because still you know even though we have moved into this largely virtual yoga world i do think most of what's being offered online is not to the to the caliber of a of a kula class and once people realize that like once enough people get introduced to kula um you know online like maybe those people then will talk to people in new york and there's all sorts of ways in which i think people can channel into what you what kula is offering and as long as that that attention to intelligence and detail is there i think there's no reason why kula can't survive and i would probably you know besides all of the economic things that you've done mm-hmm. you know to support kula's this process i think that's that you know as we look at like the other day i was looking at the the yoga in london and it's like there's tri yoga which is probably the, the so one that i associate with like quality yoga in london and then all the rest of it is um core power you know yeah. <laughs> and and that's what's happening right the only thing that can survive is the thing that does yoga really well and then the corporations that know how to survive in, you know, uh, an apocalypse of, right. of, uh, of the economy, essentially. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, you know this, but so many studios here have closed and d- just don't exist anymore. They're not on the map. Um, what I, one thing I do find interesting and a little, um, not troubling, but I don't know the answer to is I sort of imagined that when these other studios close, I, like, where do those people go? Because they're, we get some students that, you know, have come from other studios that no longer exist, but not the masses. I mean, it's not, you know, like tons of people suddenly transplant into our studio. So that's the part that I find a little, um, I don't know if worrisome is the right word, but I'm just curious, do those people not practice anymore or, you know, where are they going and, and what are they doing? Because I, as I mentioned before, I, I would imagine that these people who have been practicing yoga for so long, um, you know, going to do some other sort of physical activity isn't the same, you know, that they yeah. would, that they would miss the, these other things that, that come with a yoga practice besides asana. But I don't, I don't know. I, at, in this point, I'm sort of, that part's a little bit of a mystery to me, but I do feel like there's, um, enough people and part of what I hear and what you're saying and I hear we talk about this a lot is I I don't I wouldn't even say so much of our problem is economic but it's basically marketing and finding students that are Mm -hmm. interested in what you're offering and right now that's a new crop of 
it's not a totally new crop of people, but largely, you know, when I think of our original, so you just came on one of our retreats to Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. Um, So the, the people, some of those people that are the original crop of coolest students are, they'll come on the retreats, which is incredible. I mean, we're seeing people that we haven't seen for a decade, which is amazing. And everybody almost kind of looks the same, which is also amazing. (laughs) Selling point of yoga. I know the yoga's working, everybody. Everyone looks fresh and healthy. Um, but the, you know, those people are largely not coming to practice anymore. I mean, they're we're talking, you know, they're 20 years older. They probably so many of them don't live in the city, many of them have families, and they they're just, I don't know, in a, in a different stage of their lives and doing different things. And sometimes they'll drop into a class, but that's not our core student base anymore. So mm-hmm. how I look at it is especially because COVID was kind of this big clearing out um, and closure of the studio for quite a while is that we have to recultivate who those people are. And Kula, obviously I love it and I think it's awesome, but it is also very particular. And I think that we, and we've always kind of had this problem, you know, we're not good at social media. We're, We're not like the flashy Instagram people. We barely send newsletters. That's kind of always been our tough sticking point. Um, but yeah, I do believe if we could find, if we can find enough of those people that we will survive. And I, you know, so I, we talked a lot, a lot about the Williamsburg studio, but we also have the studio in Soho, um, which feels even more old school to me because it has, you know, in, in Williamsburg, it's one room. I mean, there's no lobby, you know, we have that kind of tiny desk in the corner, but Soho has an actual lobby, which feels like luxurious and very old school to me when I'm there Mm -hmm. working and teaching, you know, it's got two bathrooms. It's like, oh, wow, this is like, there's a couch to, you know, we always talk about the Kula couch where you can kind of like sit and hang out. There's Mm -hmm. that thing. And I've, I always felt in Tribeca as, you know, like a first, a student and then a young teacher, like that was really important that that was kind of like where the community part of where the community was built. So um, uh, that part feels like really old school to me. And I, I don't think that we would open another, I mean, we don't even have the finances to do it, but I opening another studio is not on our horizon. So I feel like if we, like, if we close the Manhattan studio, for example, <sighs> I feel like that's, that's kind of, that would be it for, for Manhattan. I think it would just be like, yeah. okay, we're in Brooklyn and that's what we're doing. And I, that really breaks my heart, not because not because we would have to downsize, but because, you know, if you live in Manhattan, you're not really going to Williamsburg. I mean, unless you go like once a month on a, on a kind of, I'm going to go like have brunch and sit by the water and do that thing. You lose another offering for people who are kind of sticking it out in the city. And that feels, that really breaks my heart. So I'm pretty, you know, if it, if it starts to really not make financial sense, then we would have to let go of it. But I feel like we really believe in like digging in and putting our stake in the ground and just, you know, ho- yeah, hoping the online can support us and until we get enough people coming that it, that it feels, you know, more financially viable. Cause I, I do really believe in it. And I feel we're in this moment where it, it is a little hard to get people out of the house to do anything. I mean, unless you're like a real extrovert, that's like, yes, get me out. I've been at home for two years. It's hard to get people to say, I'm going to spend this much time to do this one thing. And, but I feel like when they do it, I mean, people, 
they walk in the door and cry, they cry. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're so overwhelmed that, and they say like, I haven't been here in three years. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm always kind of like, wow, I've been here for three years, you know, trying to like keep <laughs> classes and get people to come. Where like, were God. you? No. <laughs> yeah, I'm really, I'm like, I'm kind of on. I've my been waiting. Like, I'm like, thank God we're still here and open. No, thanks to you. Um, yeah. But I, I do think we're in this moment, if we can stick it out where people are going to realize that they really do need these spaces and that they're that they'll be really happy that they're there. So I th- I, I think you're on to something in um in remarking on the community because that is 100% the thing that I think most people are feeling a lack of with the shift towards everything online. I mean, there's just not, you know, embodied philosophy is an all online platform and we're all constantly having conversations about how to cultivate community, you know, amongst our members and you know, there are certain things you know, there are certain lengths that we can go to cultivate that, but there's also just, you know, there's the limitations of being an online only platform that, you know, a a brick and mortar space just has more capacity, like you were saying, to facilitate that. And so, and I wonder if that, if there are things that can be done in, in, you know, not just Kula, but other yoga studios to really to really lean into that as being a feature of the offering. It's not that just you're coming here to be, you know, take a, a wham, bam, thank you, man, yoga class, which of course yeah. some people will want to do. And will you know, that's sometimes I just come in and I don't want to talk to anybody, right. <laughs> including people I love, you know, right. <laughs> I'm just totally. like, please, I'm having a terrible day. Don't talk to me. I just want to get yeah. in and get out. Yeah. Um, but then there's also people that exactly, they want to linger and they want to hang out and they want to be a part of something. And there's, I feel like there's, I mean, we're looking at, you know, over the last two years, and I've experienced this personally in my own life with people I love and, and people who I love who have, have now passed because of it is like the rise of mental illness. And, um, you know, and so much about the kind of the context of COVID and everything that has, that has transpired as a result of that has been this increased isolation that just is a, you know, it's just fertile soil for the, you know, the germination of mental illness. And community Absolutely. is such a huge part of healing that. Um, and and yeah, I think if if studios can, like I said, if they can if they can kind of tweak their their messaging to potential students as being like this is not just a place to do yoga, but it's a place to kind of connect with others. That could yeah. be really meaningful for people. I'll just share a story with you that Jen, you know Jen, our manager that we joke should be an owner because she's so involved in everything that we do. Um, she was telling me she's had several, um, people that have, that are new that have come in and, you know, are, they, they don't have a yoga practice and they're coming because their therapist told them they have to go and do yoga Mm. as a, as a, you know, resource for their mental health, which I just think, I mean, that's a very sort of mid post COVID thing, you know, that's, that's just like, it keeps cropping up and popping up. Um, and is super, I think it's, it's amazing and very interesting. Um, so yeah, there's like a new, there's also like a new kind of student or a a student that's coming for, you know, that kind of specific reason and is, is not, um, not, I would say not embodied in a, in a yoga asana practice way when they walk in the door. I mean, I don't want to call them a basic student, but you know, someone that's really like, I've never done this and I'm here Mm -hmm. because I need, I need help and I need support. And I, 
need a community. And that's always what Kula was to me. You know, when I think of sort of my baby years, I mean, it was like, um, I didn't, I, I didn't think of it as a mental health support at that time in my life. But when I think back, I'm like, oh, in, in many ways it was, and it certainly was a community. And it certainly was a place of connection where, I mean, Kula is so wonderful at that, at, at just, you know, you need this, you, you know, you want this, we have listservs or the teachers group and all these things that, you know, recommend this, you need this, you need your haircut, you need a OBGYN, you know, you need a doula, whatever it is, and that you can find just amazing support. And yeah, it, that's, that is definitely part of what we want to offer. And I don't know if that's in our messaging or most yoga studios messaging. I don't look at most other, what other studios <laughs> are doing, to be honest. Um, but it's, yeah, it's an, it, important. And that's always been such a big part of what I got out of the practice and out of a studio. And you don't mm. get that at home. Well, what's deeply, uh, one thing that's deeply ironic about what we're talking about is that, you know, one thing that we haven't mentioned for those that don't know is that Kula as a Sanskrit word that actually means community. It also means family. It means grouping. Like there are many um, ways in which the very term Kula actually kind of points to and indicates this, this sense of, of belonging. And I think, you know, for me, uh, you were talking about the retreat, um, which my friend, um, longtime friend Patty and I went to along with my boyfriend, Chris. And, you know, we, one of the reasons Patty and I wanted to go was because, you know, we wanted to be in community with these teachers that we have loved for a really long time. Yeah. And, and I think that was the draw for so many, right. Even that hadn't, it's like, that was, that was, it was, there was something about the need for that after these recent years mm -hmm. that just felt like it felt like coming home. Right. It felt yes. like a coming home that really just ne we needed to have for that, for that week. Yeah. And it's shifted. So um, for example, I mean, we, I, I actually didn't know this about Kula. We, we always ran a very successful training, teacher training program. And I, I knew most studios survived on their training money. And I always fancied that we weren't that studio. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so, sometimes can apparently be kind of snobby. Um, you know, I thought like, okay, we run this thing and it's successful and it does generate income, but we also have a very busy studio and, you know, so on and so forth. And it's not that we're surviving only on training. And so everything's flipped. Training for us is kind of totally blown up and gone by the wayside. And the retreats became wildly popular. I mean, we barely, we did sort of one Instagram post and they were sold out, you know, very full, um, mm. which didn't used to be the case. I mean, it, the retreats kind of, they didn't totally fall off for us, but they definitely dwindled. I mean, we had years yeah. where I sort of felt like, do people still want to do this or do we need to go to a new place or, you know, what, what is our offering and what's happening? And now it's totally shifted, which uh, it's exactly what you're saying. It's just a reflection of the times people want to connect. Um, they want to, they, I assume want to travel because they're traveling yeah. you know, to come with us. Um, and, you know, it's nice that it's outdoors and there's not as much COVID concerns with that. And you can be, you know, in a, in a beautiful outdoor space practicing in community and the training is, I, I mean, I, this is a whole other conversation, but I have, you know, newer teachers that come to me all the time and say, okay, I, I basically started teaching when COVID started, you know, right before COVID and didn't have time to garner any following and 
can't really find any place in the online world because in the online world, you can take any teacher that you want at any time. And what's their future? I mean, when I, I don't even know what my future is or the studio's future, but when I look at that sort of teacher that comes to me, you know, it's really hard. And I can completely see where, you know, in this past year, why people kind of hesitate at doing a teacher training because what's the future? I mean, there's yeah. not even that many studios open. Yeah. You know, if, if your desire is to make it a job, you know, and that's yeah. the big, that's the big if is I think the, so we're, we're taught, we actually just had a, a conversation yesterday about, um, you know, we always were, this is not a deep in your practice training. You know, if you want to deepen your practice, study with us or go, there's lots of trainings that do that, but we really wanted to train people that wanted to like have a career teaching. And, um, I don't, you know, that's, I know because I know from the numbers that that doesn't seem as relevant to people because of how much the landscape has shifted. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really think that that's an important point. And I, you know, for a long time, I've felt a little bit like the, the, the just smorgasbord of options for trainings was somewhat irresponsible and not in the Kula situation, because I think actually like, you know, Kula created a training that is actually of very high quality, but many trainings are just cash cows and there wasn't an attention. Right. There's not really that attention to, you know, um, to a kind of professional quality training that really would make someone a really good teacher such that they could be marketable in the, in the world. But, but more, more that, you know, the, there, there were so many teachers being trained and so few opportunities. And mm -hmm. so we were just pumping out, it was just an imbalance, right? In the kind yeah. of, in the, in the relationship between the amount of teachers being produced and then the actual, um, you know, opportunities out there. And I personally think that the, one of the solutions to this is, I mean, but this is sort of at the level of like, I don't know, Yoga Alliance or whoever the governing bodies are that decide like what con you know, constitutes a educational process. But I've always thought that the 200 hour model was too, um, it was too minimal and it didn't, it was too much of an easy hurdle for people such that like, they don't, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to do this yoga teacher training because I want to teach yoga on the side while I'm doing this other thing or while I'm preparing for my real career. Right. And it's, and it's like, but, but actually, as we know, it takes multiple years to be a, a yoga, you know, or to be a good yoga teacher, you have to learn over a long period of time. And why, why does, you know, the insight meditation society do a four year meditation program that, right. you know, of course, meditation is, is wildly complex from an, from a certain perspective in terms of teachings and, you know, esoteric, whatever, but, you know, there are quote unquote, more moving parts in a, in an awesome training, <laughs> literally yeah. that, yeah. um, and, and so why would we not have something more like a, three or four year formation process to be teachers. And then people are doing it because they literally want that as a career, right? You go to four years of university to learn something because you are planning to do your career in that. And, and I, I personally think that at some point we're going to get a bit smarter about that as a kind of yoga community and, and the trainings will be more robust. And yeah. as a result of that, we will get the serious students who really want to be teachers. And that as a result, they'll become the best teachers. Yeah, I, I love that idea. I mean, I, I talked to um, Nikki Costello a lot about this because she originally, when we started our 200 hours, she had started her 300 hour. Um, 
but what, what we talk about is what is the, what is the path? And if there's no, if you are sticking with this 200 hour model and there's no path after that, most yeah. teachers never end up teaching, even if, you know, some decide they don't want to, but even if they want to, there's just no, there is no path to help them develop. And, you know, I mean, it's not unfortunate, but if you're a brand new teacher and I could put you on the schedule, but you're not ready and, and no one's going to come to the class. You know, I mm -hmm. hate to say that, but that's sort of, they're, they're going to go. Well, especially at a place like Kula where people know the difference between a good and a not great teacher. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. totally. And they're not, you know, it's not even that, that they're not great per se. They're just so new. And yeah, I mean, I remember yeah. being a new teacher. I mean, it's, I don't, I can't even believe that you're allowed to step into a room, you know, with like moving human bodies. So Yes. I mean, we're sort of in the midst of that conversation right now at Kula with what our offerings will be, because I don't think, um, uh, you know, I, I can't say that we're not, we're still sort of offering a 200 hour and, you know, s s at some point, maybe we need to kick that can off the road. But um, yeah, I think the, the, the offering has to shift and, you know, make it relevant and useful for people or, or people, you know, they just don't sign up. And then what's the point of having it anyway? So yeah, I, I love, I do love having, I mean, it is honestly one of my favorite times of year. I mean, I really, I love like working with people in that way. Um, yeah. But I, I also do want to make it a useful um, journey for them, you know? So it's yeah. not, it's not just like something that they're doing for a few months and then they go back to their other job and, you know, or, or they try to teach and it ends up being, you know, a, a disaster where they can't make any money and they feel really lost. Yeah. I guess that was one thing that uh, Jiva Mukti um, w seemed to be doing kind of right, or at least it was interesting what they were doing. It was different from other studios in that they were, um, I don't know if they still do this because there's no Jiva Mukti studio in New York, but there <laughs> was that um, apprenticeship, right? Right. where they had the ability to kind of, they did that initial 200 and then there was like 800 or something for yeah. that includes the apprenticeship. And, and that seems to be, you know, to what you were saying about a path, the, I mean, and what was certainly missing from my training that I did um, was, you know, was initially, was just the, the lack of practice mm -hmm. and, and really, and the support around practicum you know, learning the poses and learning the names of the poses and learning about anatomy is really kind of, um, you know, it's of course an important piece of the puzzle, but it's not, it's not going to cultivate that confidence, that presence, and that, you know, ability to articulate that you develop over time teaching. Mm -hmm. And, and like you're saying, some of us who are just confident or maybe just stupid enough to, <laughs> to decide to start teaching when we, when we don't know anything, or maybe we think we know more than we do. I, that was probably the case with me. I just like thought I, you know, I've, uh, I, maybe I thought I knew more than I did. And so that was what allowed me to feel like I could show up in my first classes. Yeah, well, but, I think we all had to, had, you have to do that. Yeah. You would, you would never but, show up. Exactly. But then there's the other side, there's the people that, you know, they're they're because they're perhaps, I don't know, not as confident, or they just are more modest, <laughs> or humble. They they're like, well, I don't know enough yet to be able to teach. And then they never take that step. You know, they right. never make that leap of faith or confidence that gets yeah. them into the room. Yeah. And they keep I, I see that person a lot who does training after training after training and and never feels like they know enough. And then they, they actually, you know, they'll 
they'll come, you know, to, to one of our like advanced trainings and they've been, you know, they got certified eight years ago and they've been doing all these trainings and they still like actually don't know how to stand up and teach a class. Yeah. And that's kind of the other extreme. I mean, I love doing the continued education, but you also at some point just have to like walk in the room and, and, you know, you'll, you'll never, you're definitely never going to know everything. And you, you know, when I look at like, when I go to Jenny Capular's class or Nikki Costello's class, or like anybody that's older than me, I'm never going to know as much as they know, because, you know, as I move along the path, they also move along their path and they're changing and growing and studying and learning new things. And you just have to be for that. How I feel is that you just have to be happy with where you are. Not, not, um, content, contentment. Um, although you should be content with yoga philosophy. Um, you, you know, I, I just, I, I'm happy in that place that it's like, I know more than some people and I can help foster them and usher them along and support them. And I'm never going to know everything. And I'm never going to know more than my teachers. And that's just sort of like where I sit in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. And that feels good to me. It feels sufficient that I have, that I have teachers that I found that, will always know more than me. And that I, you know, have studied long enough and worked at my craft long enough that I have things to offer people that are newer to the game. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I think that's a really important point about, um, at any level of teaching that you're at, there's always, um, a group of students or someone who is at a certain juncture of their own practice that is going to be appropriate for your level of teaching. And, you know, and you're always evolving. You're always, sometimes you stay with a teacher and in, in, in so long as they continue to evolve, you continue to evolve with them. And, you know, and that relationship between teacher and student stays intact. And then sometimes you outgrow a teacher and sometimes, Absolutely. you know, and, or sometimes the teacher, you know, there's so many different ways in which that process kind of unfolds. Um, but I, I think also, you know, it's not even just about, knowledge and about, you know, finding someone who knows more than you. There's also something about the, the way in which that teacher makes you feel supported and the kind of the energetic yeah. quality that they bring to a space. Like there are, there are teachers that, you know, I mean, I maybe know more about yoga philosophy than they do, but I, uh, but I, but that's not what I'm going to their class for. Right. And, yeah. and, 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 and maybe they, you know, say something about the yoga tradition that I know to be patently untrue. <laughs> Um, which if happens I a lot. Ever, if I ever do that, don't tell me. <laughs> don't tell me. Tell <laughs> okay, me great. One thing that I have always loved about Kula, like when we, we have a teacher's meeting coming up, which we haven't had in like three years. And that's a good example. I'm going to jump around the map for one second, but I kind of was putting it off. Like, do people want to do this? Like, do they want to come in and all get together? And um, I'm, I'm drawing a parallel of like, trying to get people out of the house, you know, it's kind of hard. I'm, I'm like, Oh, I don't know. Do we need, to? cause we used to have them, you know, sort of periodically and it was fun and everyone would see each other. Um, and so Jen and I just recently, we were like, we've, we've got to pull the trigger, you know, like before summer really rolls around, like, let's do this. And, um, we're doing it next week, but people are so psyched. I mean, they're like, yes, thank God, you know, yes, we want to see each other and get together. And, um, which I'm happy about. And can, that's kind of the, you know, you don't want to get off the couch, but when you do, and you see the people that you don't realize that you miss and need, it's so rewarding and supportive. Um, but anyways, I'm thinking about our teachers meetings and what I have historically always loved is that um, 
they were never a meeting where it was like, this is what's happening. Here's the rules, follow them and deal with it. And I mean, you were probably at some of them. I don't know. You can tell me yes or no, but well, I, I was never permitted past substitute teacher. And actually, for those listening, I was suspended from Kula. For, which you, which uh, from, you reminded me of in Costa Rica, and I don't even remember it because my brain is a sieve. Go on. Uh, yeah, I was suspended. So I, well, I wanted to teach at Kula for a very long time before, like, you know, embodied philosophy took over and I kind of transitioned uh, out of teaching. Um, Kula was sort of my, my ambition as a teacher, which is many, you know, as many, many teachers in New York um, is, is and was, um, but I was um, permitted to be a substitute teacher. I gave you a class, um, I, or I auditioned for you, and, and you loved my class. <laughs> love um, it, and it. then <laughs> you loved it. And then I, but I was pretty bad at that time. Like I'm, I've just never been good at us keeping a schedule, especially uh -huh. when it's an early morning class and I'm subbing. Yeah. And I did this, I got fired from Equinox because I missed two sub classes at 7.30 AM. And basically <laughs> I missed two in a row at Kula and you were pissed and, um, and you like, wanted to turn, terminate me from subbing, but I, I begged you to just suspend me and you graciously did. And, um, and after I was suspended, I came back, I taught one more class and then I was like, you know what? I don't want to tarnish my relationship with Kula. Like it's, it's really important to me. And so I was like, I'm just going to not teach. <laughs> I'm not going to sub anymore so that I can just ensure that I won't piss anyone off. <laughs> that was this, you know, I didn't, I never knew, I never knew that that was the reason, but that's that's very mature of you actually thank you to, to sort of know that that's the place that you were in and that if you continued to kind of like do those things that you were gonna piss and piss someone off and ruin the relationship and you didn't want to do that very mature of you well thank you okay wait, i want to get back to our thread about the teachers meeting yes so um it was never this dogmatic like i'm the boss here's the rule you follow it really was always presented in a way that even surprised me that like, here's where, here's where we're thinking now that I'm talking about Skylar. Cause I, you know, I was kind of like baby teacher at this time. Um, like, this is what's happening. This is what we're thinking about. This is what we're presenting. Um, and it was open for discussion, which mm. I always thought really felt like a Kula and like a team, you know, that, that there was a curiosity behind what did the teachers need and want and what were their ideas, you know, and it wasn't mm. necessarily that our ideas were going to be taken and, and implemented, but it felt more, it felt more like we were equals and everybody was always paid equally. And we still pay everybody equally, which when we talk to, you know, kind of business people or our, like our online platform, you know, there's all the, there's always like the suggestion of tiers that like new teachers get paid nothing and senior teachers get paid more and et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And we've always, including owners, I mean, I, I get paid the same as everybody else. And that's just how it's always been. And, and I really, I hold on to that really strongly. And if it had to ever change, I mean, okay, so be it. Or if, it, if the teachers wanted it to change. Um, but I think there's something sort of beautiful because we, we don't really have, I mean, we have more new teachers now than we ever have had historically, but it's not historically been a studio of new teachers. It's yeah. been a studio of like really seasoned teachers that have studied a really long time. And it's just like, this is, we're on an even playing, we're an even playing field and we're equals and, you know, and, and mm. as far as pay goes, that's kind of always how it was. So I always thought that that was an interesting part of Kula that I really respected. And 
um, you know, Alex, I always feel like she's kind of like one of my mama bears. I always feel like she's been like open to like interesting conversations and she's so like lovey and touchy and et cetera. Um, and I, I would say kind of shockingly, because as you said, most people were always afraid of Skylar or are afraid of her. I don't really know, um, currently, but, um, she's so, so much more loving, I would say than I am in so many ways. I mean, like, it's really surprising even on like an email level, if, you know, if someone emails us and I'm just kind of like, ah, you know, they're, that's annoying. They're a hag. And, you know, she's like, (laughs) she's like very, you know, very sweet, very forgiving. Um, and you know, part of that, like I I use the word mom and maybe it is because she is a mom, but, um, Mm -hmm. just like, sweeter than the facade is you know yeah totally when you say that you you know went and said you know whatever your feedback was to her um I guess I would say in a way and and I think about this a lot with myself but when I look especially at like an earlier version of myself if okay I'll give you an example when I was a much newer teacher and you know I've always sort of been like known for my hands-on adjustments like that's something I love to do and you know blah blah um, one person gave bad feedback to Kula about it. And I was like, really F you about it. You know, I was just kind of like, who are you? You know, I didn't even know who it was, but I was sort of like, who are you? And you're such a loser. And like, how can you say that? And I, you know, everybody wants me to touch them and, you know, this kind of thing, like very defensive. And that comes from yeah. a, place, a place of, of insecurity, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and, um, I, I would say that, those ladies and we're, I'm, we're just using them as examples, but, um, that they, they, they can take, um, that sort of feedback in a way that I'm growing into. And now definitely like I take a step back and I'm like, okay, you know, this person said that, let me really sit with it. And when I really sit with it, there's always truth to what the person's saying, you know, Mm -hmm. 99.99% of the time there's truth in that. And it's so important to have feedback. I mean, who wants to live in a bubble where you're just like thinking that, you know, everything's perfect and everything's great. So, um, anyways, I think of myself as a very kind person, but sometimes I'm, I am shocked at the generosity of, you know, these ladies when, when the facade can be, you know, that, that people are scared of us or, you know, people tell me that too, like, oh, they're scared of you. And I just think like, what, that seems so, crazy to me, but that's, you know, that's the dynamic of, of the, the power structure of being a yoga teacher. Absolutely. That flows yeah. in and out of the room. And we, you know, we have, when I think of training people a lot, we, we all have big personalities, even if they're friendly and kind personalities, you don't really, I don't think you're too successful in the yoga world. If you don't have some sort of like presence and personality, that's part yeah. of part of the job. Um, And when I think of kind of the, we talked a little bit about this in Costa Rica, but when I think of the future of yoga studios, I do, I do think people want support from their teachers. I I think Mm -hmm. that especially coming out of COVID it, everything feels a little tender to me. Yeah. And I don't think, um, I mean, I never had kind of this, you know, guru disciple relationship with any teacher where I, I study a lot of Iyengar yoga, but I never, you know, I never was someone who went to the Institute or 
had this super dogmatic teacher that was kind of like barking orders and, you know, slapping people and doing whatever. I don't know that experience at all, but we've all read many stories and heard about it. Um, mm -hmm. But I imagine that to me feels like very outdated and by the wayside. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, of course there has to be balance. I'm, I'm also not a teacher who, I'm not a like, do whatever feels good for you, all class teacher. You know, I mean, yeah. part, part of what's, what is good for us doesn't always feel awesome. So, you know, mm -hmm. I, I try to kind of toe that line and, you know, run, you have to run a classroom and some people do run their classroom, like whatever feels good, you know, and, and all that, that really I'm annoys not, me. That's always I'm, been a really annoying cue. Yeah, I'm not me. that, I'm not that teacher, but I'm also, you know, there's tons of like, trauma sensitive trainings that are going on yeah. and trauma sensitive classes. And I'm, I think those are awesome. And I'm, I'm not trained in that. And that's not my shtick, you know, like, that's not, I think, I feel like every teacher has to like, do what you're good at, you know, and I, I like figure out what your strengths are, work on the things that you want to, that aren't your strengths, you know, and, and pepper those in and become a more wholesome, well-rounded teacher. And then there's just things that you're, that you're not doing. And I, and I'm okay with that. You know, like I look at this whole, the whole kind of like functional movement world that's happening right now and like bleeding and blending into the yoga world. And I think it's super, super fascinating. And I also know I'm not going to go like, that's not my thing. I'm not going to yeah. go and like do a whole, I just feel like I'm going to say too old. It's not that I'm too old, but I feel like a little too old to go and like learn this whole other thing and like shift my teaching in that way. It just doesn't yeah. feel like my path, but I respect it. And I think it's awesome. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I feel that, um, that, that sort of, um, I just feel like people want to be supported. And I I'll just add this as a note. I'm taking, um, Nikki Costello has a, Oh, the teacher's practice. You've been to that class before, right? Jacob? Yes, definitely. So she mm -hmm. shifted that to a, a weekend. It's on Sundays now. And I actually can't go to it because I teach at that time. So I have to be like the annoying online student that can only take the replay, um, which is a shame because there's good dialogue going on in that class. But um, it's a very, there's asana in it, but it's not asana focused. And they're reading a bell hooks book or we are reading a bell hooks book. Um, and it's about reimagining, it's about many things, but one of the main themes is reimagining the classroom. And mm -hmm. it's an interesting conversation, you know, that, that it's, um, that it's an, an exchange of learning and information and not so much about, um, the, there's a, the, a term that we've been talking about a lot, banking education, where it's sort of like the teachers depositing the information and that's just there's no exchange it's just like i'm the teacher i know these things i'm going to deposit into you now you have it and like that's the end of the conversation um and it's sort of a, it, it's we're talking a lot about just reimagining what that can look like from um a teacher and student perspective and it feels relevant because i think um you know again i wasn't in that sort of earlier wave of the yoga but when i when i hear stories and anecdotes of of what some of those classrooms were like um i don't know it just feels a little bit dated to me yeah i i appreciate so much of what you're saying and i want to i want to actually provide a little bit of context for the listeners about kind of the direction of this 
part of the conversation because I think it might be helpful. When I was in Costa Rica with Nikki, um, uh, that I we'd mentioned earlier, the part of the kind of impetus for this conversation was discussing. Um, was we were we were reflecting together on the way in which the 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 role of the teacher, the expectations of the teacher has shifted from when, you know, I mean, you started before I did, but, you know, it, it was definitely a similar environment when I started as well, because the changes that have taken place have probably been in the last three years. And I'm thinking, you know, things around inclusion and social justice, trauma, and, um, and, and dominant power structures that, um, like we've been mentioning. And so, you know, one of the things that I've really, um, you know, admired about you is that you have, you have kind of remained humble and flexible in the face of all of these things, which are very much, you know, are, are definitely like, you got to do things differently. That's the, that's what's been re requested of us to certain degrees, especially around, you know, things like inclusivity. Um, and then other things like you're saying where like, oh, functional movement is kind of a trend. And, you know, there are, there are certain um, uh, movements or, um uh, things that are becoming popular that certain thing people think are important to to turn yoga into, and you know, and other people not so much. But 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 you know the 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 way in which the teacher has been kind of um, yeah, like I said, sort of this this need to remain flexible and to transform one's um, teaching in in the wake of all of these kinds of cultural awakenings or collective awakenings mm -hmm. um there there's there's a there's an important piece of that and then there's also maybe um there are certain things that maybe have been taken to to you know to extremes like for example the touching thing like i want to go into a class and have you give me adjustments yeah. you know and I've, I've come full i want to talk about that in a second but go, go on yeah. and then i'll i'll say what I have yeah to i was just gonna i'm just gonna say like i don't want touch to stop in a yoga class like and and i can totally honor that there are some people that that need you know need that um at, at least the ability you know the space to be able to say no i don't want that but uh -huh. but but that kind of idea that like all touch is triggering you know i just i don't know it's it's that to me is not where where i land on that particular issue so there's all these issues right that we are navigating mm -hmm. and there are sort of you know there are moderate very reasonable and then there are extreme expressions of different um you know um uh adjustments that need to be made not physical adjustments adjustments to the way that we teach that 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 need to be made but those things are sort of up for debate so i kind of wanted to open it up to that conversation and talk a little bit about a you know how you have rolled with these these changes that have been really been requested of 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 teach yoga teachers from you know external circumstances um and and how you've navigated that and then also where you have felt almost sometimes like this need to maybe push back on certain things mm -hmm. so you know i i when i first started i mean people tell me this i i don't honestly remember this but people will you know relay back to me that you know i used to you know, kind of, I would, you know, say, step your right foot, you know, to your left hand. And if people didn't do it, you know, I left hand, left hand, you know, not your, you right did hand, do that. Left, I remember you know, like real, but, but shaming, like, that's really what that is, is, you know, is being kind of, uh, you know, being the dictator and, and shaming people that weren't 
whatever, not getting it or you get confused, they're right and they're left or whatever, aren't in body, they've barely done yoga. And I want to, I, I want to add to that. I want to just say, you would say left hand, left hand. I don't know how to say it any differently. <laughs> yeah. Like so bitchy, but I mean, I can't even imagine now. I can't imagine being that person or saying that because it's so, it's not compassionate. And it, it really, it, it is when I think back, a, I, I guess I would say a little bit of me imitating the teachers that I saw and knew and that, or what I thought was going on in the yoga world, or maybe it was going on in the yoga world. I guess it was, but that's kind of like what I, I thought, not, not that I thought was cool, but that's sort of what I thought the role of teacher was, you know, and I guess, I don't know, especially at Kula, maybe I'm not sure, but that's sort of, that's just, I don't know. That's, that's sort of like the costume that I inherited and put on. And, and I see that, you know, I'll just, I guess I, I can't even say it's only, you know, in the Iyengar tradition, because I just um, had an Ashtanga experience with a teacher and it was sort of the same thing, like the way the teacher was taught. I mean, they admitted like, I, I will yell, you know, and they were sort of kind of like talking down to the student. And I thought, God, this feels like, it feels familiar, but really dated. Yeah. You know, like, wow, people doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work. I'm like, you're still talking to your students this way. Like, really, like it was, a, it was eye opening. I thought, cause things, I know things have shifted, but you know, when you're in the middle of the shift, you don't realize how drastically they have shifted. So, um, I think I, you know, I used to do that. And I'm sure again, part of that was just, I thought I sort of inherited it. And part of it I'm also sure came from another, again, probably insecurity that, that I was, you know, or I don't know, it's a power structure, you know, you sort of like get off on, uh, you know, that you want it done this precise way. And you think this person's being an idiot because they're not doing it, which is very far from the truth, but that's what you think. Um, so, um, I, I'm going to jump around a little bit, like when it comes to things like inclusivity and social justice, I mean, that's been I mean, that, that's been an interest of mine way pre-yoga. I mean, yeah. from, you know, this is dating back to when I was in high school and yeah. that's, that's always been sort of, um, that's just been something that I wanted to make part of my life's work. And I didn't do it when I first came into the yoga world because I was like a baby teacher. And, you know, then even when I like opened a studio, I was, I was still always kind of like new and the underdog and, um, and, and we started our, well, you know this, but we started um, our social justice module in the training, in our 200 hour training, way before it was cool. And, you know, and let, that everybody thought it was necessary in doing it. And, and I got a lot of pushback on it. I got a lot of, not, not so much from students, but actually from other people, like teachers in the community, you know, that sort of, um, what, why is this in the training, essentially? Like, this isn't... Mm. This isn't part of, oh yeah, really, really interesting. This isn't part of um, yoga, basically. And I felt really strongly that yes, it is, it, at least in my yoga, like this mm -hmm. is part of it. And this is, and that was really when, when I wanted to really step into my own, to, that was part of what I wanted to, to do and bring to the yoga world and to make Kula more inclusive. You know, I mean, and it's a struggle. I mean, Kula still is a largely 
white studio, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. we have more men, I would say than most studios, at least it's kind of more split gender wise, but, um, but they're mostly gay. That, let's be that, honest. Yeah, of, of course. Um, <laughs> that's why I, you know, that part didn't feel like I had to transform, you know, to like get on that on board with that, because that, that, that moment in time felt to me like, oh yeah, we're here, you know, like, awesome. Let's do this. It felt like very natural to me and it more resources were available. More people were interested, you know, that, that part felt very kind of organic to me. Um, the moving away from the, the sort of like dictator teacher, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, it's just some feedback, some reflection. I just kind of get the um, vibe from people that that's not making them feel supported, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and I think I I think that there is a healthy balance in there somewhere. You know, if you're I, I do, I do sort of see in, in the loss of some of that um, kind of authority of the teacher that it does get really wishy-washy, not only for students, but, you know, I even see with, with teachers that it's like, it's kind of my job, but only when I want to show up and do it, you know, and I want to be able to have like flexibility to do this, that, and the other. And, you know, you can't have no structure. I mean, you can't have yeah. just sort of like a total free for all, or then it just, then it's a big mishmash, you know, doesn't work at all either. Um, but I do, I guess when I imagine kind of where I'm at now in the future, um, I do want it to be a place where it feels inclusive, the students feel supported, the teacher also feels supported by studentship. I think that's a, a, also an important part, you know, that the student mm. is choosing to be in studentship, which is very different than just, you know, I'm going to show up willy nilly and kind of do whatever I want. You know, that's a paying customer, but that's not someone who wants to be your student. So that, that feels like a necessary part of the two way that, that, that people, you know, want to engage in studentship and kind of choose you as a teacher, even if it's only for a given amount of time and then they move on. Um, and that the, that we're learning from one another, you know, mm -hmm. not, not that it's, again this idea of just depositing the information like I learned something I know it I'm going to pass it on to you you're going to accept it I mean that's how I learned in education I was a really good regurgitator you know that's mm -hmm. and I was a straight A student because I could memorize the thing you know like that's kind of, I've never people ask about memorizing sequences all the time I, that's not my problem I can easily do that and I can regurgitate really well and I'm a really you know I'm a really hard worker and that's what I learned education was and then yeah. I went to university and, you know, got my first paper was a C plus. And I was like, what do you mean C plus? You know, I'm like, where I regurgitated everything the teacher I know. said. I'm like, where is the A plus? What do you mean? Um, so that's, you know, and that's kind of an evolution uh, as a student and of, um, of a teacher that there is this dynamic quality to it, that there's a, that there is a back and forth and, you know, I've, I've, there's, I, I'm what, I don't know what the famous quote is, but you know, that the best teachers are always students, you know, something kind of like mm -hmm. this. Yeah. Um, and not that you're only, I mean, yes, you're a student of your teachers that you go to, but you're also a student of your students. And as I, um, progress in my teaching, you, 
you know, I still, I'm very prepared in my classes. I kind of know exactly what we're going to do more or less asana wise, but the more that you can really walk in the room and observe your students, the less sort of formally prepared that you have to be in the sequence or exactly what you're going to do, because there's so much there. They're, they're offering you so much just by reading the students' bodies, what's going on in the world. I mean, I think that's another big piece of what's coming into classrooms is that, and that's sort of what I got when I got pushed back from the social justice is that, you know, in the, the yoga rooms, the yoga room, and the, uh, the world's the world, you know, and they're, and they're two mm. different things. And I don't, I don't think that's true. I, I, and, and it certainly in this moment doesn't feel true because people are coming to class and they, they're just wrecked. I mean, there's so much going on in the world and there's no way that they're coming to class, not bringing that with them. And I think it's a mistake t- for a teacher or a studio or a studio owner or whatever to try to separate those two and to say that they're that that's not coming into the classroom because it is it's there it's in their bodies um Mm. so you know i think if the yoga world bricks and mortar studio model is going to survive i think that that has to be a piece of it because um i think that that people need that and i think if that's an offering Um, of the studio. And I don't know what that looks like. And it can come in so many different ways, just in a teacher's presentation or attitude or how they engage with the students. But I think that that is something that people are looking for. And when they choose to come to a class, like you're saying, make the journey, pay the money, show up. And for for me, hands-on is a huge part of that. I, you know, I kind of, there was that whole moment, you know, in the Me Too moment where it was like, okay, now hold on everybody, you know, don't touch anyone. And there's, there were, there were very important discussions around that. And I I was fully in them and, and happy to be a part of them. And I'm, I, when we first opened again after COVID, I did actually, I tried to make it a practice to ask about hands-on but it was more because of COVID. I mean, it it was, it was like, okay, we're, I don't know, you know, what's the protocol, what's going on. And, and then I just, it most, it was mostly out of habit, but I, you know, everyone stopped wearing masks in class and I sort of just forgot. I would always forget to ask and no one would once like one out of 200 people, I'm not exaggerating. And I was glad I asked for that one person that she said, you know, I don't, I don't want to be touched. But for the most part, I, I think that's part of why, especially at Kula and especially in my class, people are choosing to come to the in-person class. Mm-hmm. And there's so much um, instruction and support and dialogue and um, back and forth that happens during a hands-on adjustment that I, I'm back to just 100% strongly believing in them. And, you know, feel the same way. Obviously people have autonomy and authority over their own body to shoo me away and say, they don't want me to touch them. But in general, um, especially for people that I don't know, live alone or, you know, have been like alone for two years, two and a half years. I just think it's magic. Yeah. If, you know, of course, if done appropriately and, and feel feel supportive and not, not like I'm, you know, trashing your body and trying to fix you, but just that I'm trying to be supportive. Does it seem like, um, 
I don't know if you've observed this in the rest of the yoga world, but does it seem like there is a a strong movement to tell teachers not to give adjustments? Like, is that happening in a lot of trainings that you know of? Um, I'm not sure. I'm actually going to teach this weekend um, at a studio in Pittsburgh. And I asked the teachers, um, there's like 20 teachers, and I asked them, you know, what do you, what's your biggest struggle right now as a teacher, or what do you want to work on? Or, you know, because I, uh, it's a good example. I want to make it relevant. You know, I want to go there and like teach them something that's useful, not teach them what I think is useful um, or what I'm doing in New York City because it might be very different than what they're doing. And one of the teachers who was a male said to me, um, he, he didn't talk about hands-on. He was talking about the gaze and the male gaze, like the upon. Gaze. Oh, the gaze. G- wait, gaze as in as me in the- gay or no, gaze as no, in no, the no. gaze? No, no, no. Oh my God, that's so funny. No, the gaze is like from the eyeballs. <laughs> like the observation. No, not He was gaze. like, those gays no. coming to my class wanting to get touched. No, that's hilarious. Oh my God, I love it. Um, no, the male, the male gaze, like the observation. And that he kind of, he, he alluded to the fact, and I'll have to pick his brain more when I go there, but that, that that was passed down to him kind of in some sort of training that observing bodies, female bodies was um, trickier for men than women, basically was his kind of, that's what I got from him. We had just a very brief exchange, but I thought that was really interesting. I don't, I was almost a little shocked actually. I thought that was interesting. I mean, I do know that about hands-on adjustments. That's just kind of like par for the course. Um, But I hadn't really heard that about the observational quality and sort of like the lingering eye type of thing. Mm -hmm. Was this a straight man? um, I don't know. I don't know because I have never Mm -hmm. met him. I don't know. I'll report back. I mean, I think I, to me that like, I've always felt like being gay and being pretty confident that everyone knows I am that I, you know, there's a a permissibility around touch with, you know, touching women that wouldn't be the case if I was straight. And I think that straight teachers just face a lot more sensitivity around that for very, you know, obvious reasons. Um, But because there's you know, there's a, there's no threat for most women that I am going to try to come on to them. (laughs) And if there is, I can promise you, you're fine. (laughs) Now the hot man over there. Um, Um, Yeah, totally. I don't know. I mean, I think that I'm not sure how people are being trained, but what I can tell you is that, and I even see this at Kula and it's something that we're going to talk about at the teacher's meeting. Um, touch is gone by the wayside. It's really mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm kind of like in there digging around. Cause I, that's, I also like to do it. I mean, it feels very natural and I, I feel involved. Um, but it's, it's not, it doesn't get done that much anymore. It really, mm-hmm. it really doesn't. And I, um, and I think less, you know, I always fancied Kula because it was as a place where you would get lots of hands-on and I don't think it's, it's definitely less even at Kula, but I think I imagine, cause it was always this way when you went to other studios and especially outside of a big city, it was even less. So yeah. I'm not sure how they're being trained, but I, I and I've talked, um, you know, like I, I auditioned this girl a couple weeks ago and 
she told me that she was really big on hands-on adjustments. And I was like, oh, great. Awesome. You know, can't wait. This might be a really good fit, so on and so forth. And then we did the class and she never touched me. I, I mean, it was just me. She was just teaching me. It was, which is always like so awkward and weird. Mm. Um, and you know, everybody's always terrified and awkward and blah, blah. Um, but I asked her afterwards, I, I said, I, you know, tell me more because I, you, you gave off the impression that you were really into hands-on. Um, and her response was that she hadn't been in a classroom and she'd been teaching online and she hadn't touched anybody in almost three years. <sighs> and so what I feel is that, and I've, I've, I mentioned this to Skylar the other day, I, I've only done it at Kula one hands-on adjustment workshop. I mean, I don't know, 10 years ago. I mean, it was a very long time ago. Um, but I feel like people maybe just need not a refresher of how, like, how do you actually adjust? You know, some people do need that, but just a refresher of like what it's like to be in communion with another body, as far as hands-on go in a classroom, because mm -hmm. I think it's another sort of pattern that people have gotten into of just a, not being in a classroom teaching physical bodies and B not touching them when you go. Yeah. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I don't have any judgment of that. I just think it's part of what happened in COVID, but, mm -hmm. um, I just, I've always, you know, I just, I'm tried and true that I love adjustment. I just really believe in them. And I, and I, and I think they've had to also change, you know, I, I don't believe in, in like these kind of like crazy adjustments where you're just like yanking people into the body. Yeah, yeah, I, and I never yeah. really, I never really have been. Um, to me now it, it does feel a much more kind of like supportive grounding way of like holding someone and communicating with them. Um, but I just think it's such a beautiful thing and, or it can be anyways. And I, I, I think that, I don't know how people are being trained, but the ones that have already been trained, or for example, the people that we, you know, we did one online training, a fully online training, and then we did a hybrid training The you know, I tried to do adjustments with them, but I mean, online you know it's yeah just, how do you teach that online anyway it it's really hard. wasn't no and you know i i kind of asked them to like get a body in their house you know and, and i would be on the screen <laughs> doing it with someone and i was like get someone that you can work with but it just you know i can guarantee you none of those teachers know how to adjust people yeah um it's so difficult not to i taught adjustments for a while when i was when i was still teaching austin regularly and um and yeah you it, if you can't a feel the adjustment of another student um, or another teacher, it's difficult to give feedback because, you know, there's so much about, I think one thing that I really early on learned about myself was that um, I am stronger, taller, and bigger than people. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't, you know, that's, I truly, I mean, it sounds funny, but I really did not understand that like a petite young woman, you know, that I couldn't just lie on her back in Paschimottanasana, right. Right. Uh, you know, because I'm heavy. And, yeah. and I think also like I have, I've always had a little bit of body dysmorphia. I think I think I'm smaller than I am. Uh -huh. <laughs> and um, I think I, I, Alex tells me all the time, she's like, you have such body dysmorphia because I imagine that I'm like this like big hippo person. And she's like, you're insane. We, I, we all have it to some degree. Okay, go on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even yesterday, like my friends are like, you're tall. And I'm like, I'm not tall because tall people are six, four, six, five. But of course the person who is, you know, like you always think of someone who's taller than you as the tall person because you're just your height. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but that sort of, that was one thing, the, the kind of understanding that different body types 
require a different, you know, degree of, you know, pressure. And that is a very, that's something that could only be learned through experience really. But even having, if I had been taught that, I, I never yeah. was really taught that, you know, right. it was like strong adjustments were generally fine. Yeah. And I was going to Jiva Mukti where, you know, teachers were giving me really intense adjustments. Yeah. Um, and, and I loved adjustments even when they were really intense, but having to learn that, that was such a, a key piece of the puzzle is that, and I think it, you know, conversely for, um, for a woman who's quite small, you know, she can apply more pressure to a burly man because yeah. like we take more to kind of, you know, um, to adjust, right. There's yeah. for, more force kind of necessary. And then the other thing I think when I, when I was still doing a lot of asana teaching is that, um, and, and I, I really believe that you can pass on, you know, energy, um, through touch. And if you're in a terrible state in your personal life, it's probably best for you that day, not to touch someone, you know, totally. um, because you are going to, you know, you're going to translate or, or, or you're going to, channel your own stress into another body. I really believe that. And, and so you kind of have to check in with yourself and even do a kind of clearing of your own psyche to know if you really are in a place where touching people is a healthy thing for you and for that other person. And even conversely, you take other people's energy as well when you're adjusting. Totally. And so I think of that very much the same as what we were talking about with the sort of like, you know, dictator, you know, teacher who's got the whip out and, um, I think of that really as the same thing. If I, if I know, and I, you know, when you're new, I don't think you're as aware. Like I wasn't as aware. I would just go and do the thing anyways. And, you know, even be like mad at the person who wasn't doing what I said and, you know, kind of like go over there and adjust that person on purpose, you know, cause they were the person that was like not following the directions and whatever, whatever. Yeah. And now it's, it's the same as just like dial it back, you know, like park, par- put that in the parking lot. And sometimes, yeah, that does mean that I don't really touch people that much in that class. And that's been a part of my um, maturing as a teacher to just say, it's not, you know, it's not useful. It's not worth it. I need to, it's more useful for me to not pass that on to the student and to really kind of like check myself and try to like teach and be supportive and, you know, have, have enough like direction without being overbearing. And maybe I don't touch them that day, you know, and that, mm. that bums me out. Cause I really do like to go and touch people, but, um, yeah, I have to know when it's right for me and when it's not right for me and when it's right for the student and not right for the student. And that's, you know, you're not, you're not always going to guess correctly, but for the most part, that is just practice and sort of, you know, getting to know yourself and getting to know the students. And mm. that's part of what's important in, the relationship of studentship and, and teacher, you know, yeah. is, that, is that you can kind of like have that dialogue and, and conversation. Mm. But I still believe in it. Yeah, same. Please touch me if I ever come to your class. All yeah. of you teachers out there. <laughs> I know I will. I remember in Costa Rica, I, I said I would touch you and then I didn't. It was this, I got, I got a little. Oh yeah, but I love to give um, anybody a hard time if they don't touch me enough, um, including my boyfriend. Uh. Lovely. <laughs> um, so this has been wonderful. I kind of knew this would happen. We would, you know, normally I, I'm like, oh yeah, 45 minutes to an hour. But I knew that chatting with you would take us to that kind of full 90 minutes. And it certainly has. And I could talk to you for 
you know, many more days to come. Um, but is there anything that you would like to know or you'd like to share rather with the listeners in terms of how they can find you and how they can find Kula? And, you know, we've given people a little bit of a behind the scenes look into so many amazing things about you as a teacher and also the kind of Kula Yoga project that you have um, co-created. I mean, you you started out going to that studio and then you became a co-creator of the second studio. Well, actually, you should tell a little bit about that maybe before okay, we close. I'll, I'll do it, I'll do it yeah. in a nutshell. Um, Tribeca was the original Kula, which Skylar is the founder of Kula and Kula Tribeca. And I was, you know, a broke New Yorker in 2001 when September 11th happened. And Kula opened right after that. And I, they were offering money to move downtown. And I took the money and moved downtown. You know, hopefully I don't die of lung cancer or something. But um, wow. I, I lived in the neighborhood. And the studio opened. I mean, it was, you know, it was, I mean, the studio was open and people were going to it. So it, it wasn't, um, I can't remember what month the studio opened, but obviously... I guess it must have been clean enough because we're all still, you know, living and healthy. But I lived in the neighborhood. And so I ended up, um, I won't go into the whole story of how I ended up in a yoga class, but I ended up going to Kula Tribeca. And as I mentioned, sort of like, it was very small. I mean, classes were kind of like seven people. And our first retreat, we all like traveled together, you know, like Allison and Skylar and I, you know, we all got on the plane and went to Costa Rica together. Um, and I just met these like super lovely, powerful ladies that I wanted to emulate. And I, I just found so much richness in the community and in the people. Um, and I taught for, well, we opened Williamsburg in 2010. So I taught for five years and I only taught at one other studio along with Kula. And um, I wanted to have a space. I wanted, I didn't want to, um, not as far as Kula, but as far as other studios, I didn't, A, I didn't want to work for someone else that didn't have the same ideas that I, that I had. Um, and, but I also wanted to paint the walls and I wanted there to be like a nice, a nicer bathroom, or I wanted, the, I wanted there to be good props. And when you don't own a studio, you can't really do those things. Um, and I loved having the community. I mean, Kula really kind of like saved my life and made a home for me in New York. And I wanted to offer that for other people. Um, and so I went to Skylar and, you know, said that I wanted to open a I didn't threaten to leave. I didn't say, I'm going to leave if you don't do this with me, but I just said, I, I, I really want to do this. And she said, let's do it. And um, we looked around for, I wanted to do it in Brooklyn because I lived in Brooklyn at that point. I had moved out of Manhattan and um, we couldn't find, I, originally we, we wanted to be where I am now, which is Fort Green, Fort Green, Clinton Hill. And there's just, they don't have big kind of cavernous spaces in this area. Yeah. Just, we waited, you know, we looked for like two years and we couldn't find anything. And she lived in Williamsburg. And um, so I poked around there and there was, you know, we found this, the space in the mill building where we eventually opened. So um, we opened that one together and then, you know, we were there for 10 years. I don't know how Skylar moved to California. As you know, I can't, I don't, mm -hmm. maybe, I think it's been like, seven years now I don't know I can't yeah. I can't remember how long but kind of I'd say like halfway through our lease there um she moved to California and that that's actually been really beautiful it's been um you know she's still very involved we have like weekly Jen and her and I get on calls um but that was also a moment where I could kind of like step into my own because I was like kind of left here to do it you know like be the person on the ground mm -hmm. and it and it it opened an, an opportunity for me to sort of flourish, which felt really nice. 
um even though it was a lot more work but felt good and then the Tribeca um lease was like very kind of iffy and that building was falling apart and we didn't know what was going to happen with it so we opened Soho that's how we ended up with Pula Soho and then um Tribeca closed during COVID partially because the lease was ending but the landlord was just like not negotiable there was just like no negotiating happening um so yeah now we have Soho and Williamsburg and and we Skylar and I do still do it together but I'm kind of here on the ground uh running the show over here yeah Um, and you do it so well no I try I don't you know I didn't know anything about running a business and um it's it's been so rewarding and I even if there's, you know, no money at the end of the rainbow, I still, it's so rewarding. It really is. It's a, it's a lot of work to have a small business with so few people running it and helping, but it's, I, I still love it. And it's awesome. Um, so I guess my biggest message to anyone listening is that if you, if you believe in bricks and mortar yoga studios and you want to be able to go to them and believe in them, then go because if you don't, they're going to close, <laughs> including Kula, probably. Um, mm. But just, you know, I, I think there's something people, um, they, they, they like to know it's there. You know, like people get very sort of heartbroken if, one of, if we close one of the studios, but that, yeah. person, that person hasn't been in five years. So, yeah. you know, that's just part of the process. Um, but if, you know, if you, if it's kind of like you love that it's there and you, because you think you're going to go next week or next month and someday you're going to get back to it. I would just encourage people to start going when you can, even if you think that you're getting as good of an experience online doing yoga at home, because there's, there is something really beautiful and special um, about being in a studio and we believe in it. And we, like I said, we've got our stake in the ground and we want to keep plugging away at it, but um I mean, all studios, I talk to other owners, you, we need people to come if, if, if you want it to be there. Yeah. So we're, so we're in Brooklyn, we're in Williamsburg, we're hard to find, but we're in, we're still on North third in Williamsburg and in Soho, um, you know, we're right on Broadway in between a bunch of boarded up stores. Nothing's open anymore. Um, between Broom and Grand street. And, um, we would love to have you. So if you are, looking for us or thinking about us about come that would be my message yeah i mean if you are in new york absolutely come to these two studios if you have not heard of them before or if you've heard of them but you didn't get a chance to meet someone like nikki who's so central to um to kula's identity in new york and then also if you're not in new york then you can take kula's classes or you can and you can take nikki's classes on union well go to Kula yoga project and then through that you can find the online classes and then sign up for a retreat the retreats are super fun they are hosted well i mean they're the hosts are are um are rotating obviously one i went to was hosted by nikki and skylar who we've talked about and we also mentioned alex and if you get a chance to go to one that's hosted by all of these three ladies, you will be in for a real treat because it is a lot of fun and um, not dogmatic or um, or overly serious at all. Actually, quite um, 
ridiculous (laughs) in a totally wonderful way. I know. And I want to mention, I don't know when you'll, this podcast will appear, but, um, Rebecca, I've pulled Rebecca out of the, out of her coffin that she's been in. No, she's not in a coffin. She had another baby, Bruno. He's so beautiful, but she's, we're doing a February retreat in Costa Rica. So we're doing, Rebecca and I are doing February and then Skylar and I, and hopefully Alex, you know, she has her book coming out. So we're not sure of her schedule, but anyways, yes, please join us. It's lots of fun and, you know, lots of hands-on adjustments and tequila and funny, funny things happen on those retreats. Lots of tequila. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And you can find all those retreats as well on, um, on Kula's website, kulayogaproject.com, right? Dot com. Yes. Oh, not yes. Kulayogaproject, kulayoga.com. Kulayoga.com. Wow. You, that shows how um, long Kula has been around because you would, the fact that you found Kula Yoga before, kulayoga.com before someone else snagged it is, is just a testament to, I know. to um, but the history. It is, it, I know. Um, it is a project. I mean, and I don't mean a project in work. It's just an ongoing, you know, we're, we're interested in kind of um, keeping, it, keeping it alive and, and rolling with the times and seeing how it matures and progresses and um, what iteration Kula Yoga will become. We're, we're interested and we want to keep plugging away at it. So we hope that you want to do that with us. I hope that Kula is around for just as long as it's been around so far. And um, because coming back, I mean, I'm not in New York now, but anytime I come to New York, I really can't imagine Kula not being there. It's such a, it's such a special place. And I'm very grateful that now you, uh, Soho is so close to where I tend to stay when I'm in New York, which is at Chris's house, which is just around the corner. And that is such a blessing to be able to walk to Kula. I don't think I've ever had a walking relationship with a Kula class before. It's I mean, that's exciting. a real gift. I used to move around New York City. Um, I, I just kept moving like around Kula Tribeca when I had to move because I, I didn't want to <laughs> move. That was like my, my big decision. Where am I going to live? Because I wanted to be by the studio. So yeah, anyway, makes a difference. Um, it does. Thank you so much, Nikki. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks, Jacob.